Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right. Well, welcome to this week's show, everyone. How are you doing? Um, This is Lynn Vartan. You're listening to the Apex Hour. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. Today, we have been talking about Russia and what some people think of as the Siberian tiger, but we'll hear more about what that tiger actually is. I have the author of The Tiger here in the studio with me. Welcome, John Valiant. Thank you, Lynn. So good to be here. (laughs) Well, it's been great to have you on campus these few days, and I understand that you're doing some traveling in Southern Utah. So welcome to Southern Utah. <laughs> oh, it's been awesome. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get into talking about the book, but first, can you tell us a little bit about who you are for people who might not know as a writer and some of, um, your, of course, The Tiger, but your other two books as well and kind of where you're living now and how you came to be from there to here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a journalist and author uh, based now in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, but born and raised uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I think that's where I learned my love of good writing and grew up um, with The New Yorker in the house and reading Boston Globe and The New York Times and uh, always you know, wanted to do that kind of writing and um, was lucky enough to get into The New Yorker a couple of times early on in my career. And uh, I was always interested in adventure stories and uh, particularly in uh, stories about collisions between human ambition and the natural world and, and where human plans didn't always go according to the human plan. Right. Uh, so um, started out doing that and then got into deeper, longer projects in my, my first book, which is called The Golden Spruce, about uh, a, a unique tree that was cut down by uh, some people say he was a crazy man and other people say he was a visionary. Um, that first showed up in the New Yorker, and and the New Yorker's uh, you know great platform for launching a book, and uh, that's really how it started for me. Great. Well, the Tiger has been the book that we've been reading on campus, and several of our classes have been reading it. And I know that you've you've told the synopsis tale a few times, but in your own words, would you tell our audiences for anybody who might not know what the Tiger is about? Sure. Uh, the Tiger. Uh, uh, in the title is a Siberian tiger, uh, the, the the big furry tiger that lives in Russia, that you know lives in the snow. Um, locally, they're called Amur tigers after the river that flows through that region of far eastern Russia, which is on the Pacific coast, a long way from Moscow. And it's the only place where those tigers live now. There's about maybe 500 of them left. Uh, and they used to live all over eastern Russia and down into China, uh, but they've been killed off. Uh, and this story takes place in 1997, uh, a few years after uh, the uh, Berlin Wall came down and communism collapsed uh, across Eastern Europe and Russia. And that led to total economic and social chaos. And one of the results was a lot of people became unemployed in Russia. 
literally had to live off the forest. So these are people who might have been loggers or miners. You know, imagine uh, that happening in Utah and people basically being forced to hunt and fish simply to feed their families. Right. And the Chinese border is right there. And there's always been for, you know, centuries now, a market for tiger parts uh, for um, traditional Chinese medicine in China. And so Russians started killing their own tigers and selling them uh, to the Chinese. And in this particular case, uh, this particular tiger was wounded by a poacher. And the tiger uh, identified the man who shot him and hunted him down and killed him. And that's really just the beginning of the story. And then it turns into this, uh, basically, this really brutal cat and mouse game between hunters and the tiger as the tiger converts to man-eating. And this all really happened in the winter of 1997. One of the parts in the book that, and, and you just mentioned it, was this this trade for tigers and tiger parts. And mm -hmm. I was... Um, I think obliquely aware of that, but but to to read some of the details about it in your book and even the tiger farms or parks, could you talk about that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, for for so the tiger is an Asian animal. They don't live in Africa. They live only in Asia. And for almost every Asian, whether it's a tribal group, you know, from from hundreds or thousands of years ago, or even uh, in contemporary culture, the tiger is a very very potent animal. And in Asia, that reverence is expressed and often in a desire for parts of the tiger. Some people like to have the claws as an amulet. Some people believe the whiskers will give them wisdom or insight or special powers. Some people um, make soup or wine out of the bones to heal their rheumatism. People like the skins as a status symbol. So this has been in place and been the case for a long, long time, but uh the tiger population, needless to say, has plummeted uh, over the past century. And now they're across all of Asia, a huge place. There may be 3,000 tigers left in the wild. And so with every tiger that's killed, uh, it really impacts the gene pool and the potential, you know, the, they get, they grow closer to extinction. So, so this market now is much more problematic and, um, people are working hard to change attitudes toward tigers in, in Asia. Uh, and the Russians were actually, uh, because they're really culturally different, uh, they were the first to declare the tiger a pr protected species right. in the 1940s, and so, which was a really long time ago for tiger protection. Uh, people you know, still hunt wolves and all kinds of predators, and that was happening all across North America. So Russia was actually quite ahead of its time in that regard. That's really interesting, and and I keep going back to that point where Russia was one of the was the first to protect it, and mm -hmm. and now the relationship is so much more complex. It's yeah. just fascinating in that way. Um, can you describe? I mean, you do such a beautiful job in the book, but can you describe the um, the, the enormity of this animal and and just give us paint us a little bit of a picture of of. Maybe not this tiger, but of these tigers, these types of tigers. Sure. They, to give you an idea how different um, Amur or Siberian tigers are, uh, an early Russian researcher from the 1890s, or actually no, 1920s, he thought that the Russian tiger was a throwback to the Pleistocene, to the era of the cave bear and the woolly mammoth. Wow. They were so big and so furry. And so different. You know, when we think of tigers, we think of India and jungles and these, you know, sleek animals that laze around in the heat. And 
in Russia, where Amur tigers live, it's 50 below zero in the winter. And they, you know, they're not like bears. They can't hibernate. They are hunting all winter long, and they don't hunt in packs or groups. So a single tiger has to look out for itself. If it's a female, she might have four cubs to feed. So she has to be an incredible hunter and keep her and her cubs alive through minus 40, minus 50 temperatures. And so they're, they're really in another class from all other tigers or really other big cats. And they can also grow to be five or 600 pounds. Yeah. And they can jump 20 or 30 feet, you know, and they will eat anything if they have to. You know, they, they live on typically boar or deer, but they will eat anything with protein in it. They, you know, they'll eat ducks, they'll eat termites, they'll, and if they are forced to, they'll eat people. And mm-hmm. so they're an extraordinary presence in the forest. And, and a lot of hunters and people who are, who live in that part of the world just talk about tiger energy and not in a mystical new agey way, but just the woods vibrate with it mm-hmm. when they're nearby. Yeah, that energy has been talked about a lot in in the book, but not just the the supernatural energy, but also energy from people who actually had contact with the tigers. Some of the characters and and Yuri Trush in the book who actually had direct contact then was sort of marked in a way or almost felt yeah. marked where mm-hmm. he anytime he was around an, a tiger from then on had a very drastic reaction to him yeah. can you talk a little bit about that that aspect of it um and which would get into a little more of the the mental energy and um this idea of how the tigers think or sure that kind yeah. of thing yeah so i mean t- to begin with tigers are higher mammals you know so they can you know, they don't have speech, but they have memories and they have strategy and you have to be smart to be a good hunter. It's very different than being a deer where you just eat leaves or grass. I mean, hunters have to create successful situations or else they starve to death. So they have to read the landscape. They have to understand prey. And uh, the hunters, the human hunters who are doing exactly the same thing in the same forest, pursuing the same game, will offer will, will often encounter tigers. And they really speak of them as colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, not as enemies or competitors, but as fellow hunters. And I had the, the rare privilege of speaking to a number of people who have been attacked by tigers and, and lived. And, you know, it's just one of the most intense experiences you can imagine, you know, and, and I was trying to describe it in, in the book. And it's, you know, it's like being jumped on by a piano, but the <laughs> piano has a mouthful of, you know, three-inch fangs and gigantic claws. And, um, you know, there's all different reasons you might be attacked, but, but you're never the same afterwards. And not just from the injuries, but, but from being that close to that kind of sentient but annihilating energy. Uh, you know, it's different than being hit by a car. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so in the case of Yuri Trush, who was a warden who was charged with tracking down this injured tiger, um, he was uh, he was attacked by that tiger, and he was also then leapt at by another tiger that was behind a fence. But he, he's, he's just saying to me that it was like the tiger singled me out from a group of other people and threw itself full force at the fence. And and even though there was no way it could have gotten through the fence, he was just knocked down by the energy. And Yuri Trush is a tough man, and he has fought off armed men, armed poachers. He's about six four. He is, you know, one of the, the toughest and most principled men I've ever met. And so to hear him talk that way about tiger energy really made me pay attention. Wow. Tiger energy. 
That's amazing. Um, I would love to, I think we'll take our first musical break, but that that sort of leads me into my next sort of topic that I wanted to get into, which we'll, we'll do when we come back. And that's about the relationship uh, between the humans and the, and the tiger in this, in this area and the things that you discovered about that. But we'll do that when we come back. Um, it's now time for me to play a song for you. Um, I've got a few songs to play for you today. Um, I've been listening to a lot of the South by Southwest artists uh, since that festival happened fairly recently recently. And there's a new release from Apparat. And this is a song called Brandenburg. Um, So yeah, come right back and listen to us after this break of Brandenburg from Apparat here on KSU Thunder 91.1. Thank you. 
Okay, well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. That song was Brandenburg, and the band is called Apparat, A-P-P-A-R-A-T. This is the Apex Hour. I'm joined in the studio with author John Valiant. Welcome back. Good to be with you. <laughs> well, we were talking uh, over the break about a topic that 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 I, that I know you would like to talk about and that I find fascinating, and that is the, um, you mentioned collisions and how your writing deals with some of these collisions between humans and animals, but there are other collisions and other different relationships that are taking place in the book. Um, namely, they're, they're all different populations that are taking place in, in Russia during the time of this story. Um, you know, there are the, the poachers, there are the farmers, there are the, the village people, but there's also a native population as well. Um, who lived and has lived quite peacefully among the tigers for years. And then this incident happens. I wonder if you could get into that a little bit. Yeah. So uh, where this uh, all took place was in a you know, very rural area, really in the, in, in the forest. And the towns were very small, you know, maybe a couple hundred people in each town. And there were native villages and also European Russian villages. And the European-Russian attitude toward tigers was quite different than the native attitude. And, you know, the, the native population, needless to say, has, had been there much longer uh, and had literally grown up even culturally with tigers. And unlike in China, the the tribal groups uh, in the Russian Far East, the Udigay, Nanai, and Orochi, the tiger was a sacred animal to them. And how they expressed their reverence was, you don't kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, and And they, just as many... Native groups uh, here in in North America, they they had animal ancestors. So for them, the tiger was a relative. Right. And shamans might turn into a tiger. Their ancient ancestors might have been tigers. And so they felt a kinship. uh, And they shared the forest with the tiger. Uh, I spoke to a lot of Native people. They might have encounters with the tiger. When they would meet them, they would talk to them. Wow. Um, they, if they, and they knew the forest well enough that they knew where the animal herds were. And if they saw that a tiger was after a particular boar herd, they would give way to the tiger. Say, so, you know, you know, you're the, because they were like fleshed and furred gods, if right. you will. Right. But the result was they were never attacked. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, European Russians, you know, were, came out of a Judeo Christian, uh, heritage. And their sense was, you know, man is the the lord of of his domain, and nature is there to serve the needs of human beings. And you know, where I think people are familiar with that attitude here in Utah, and but that would lead to conflict with tigers because tigers they're the ones who think they're masters of their <laughs> domain, and so it was really a collision between two would be kings and mm-hmm. queens, if you will. The tigers have already staked this place out for millennia. And then these um, uh, European Russians come in and say, no, we're, we're actually going to run the place now. And, and they were more prone to attack, attacks and conflicts with tigers. Yeah. And the, the best integrated European Russians were the ones who had learned from the Udigay and Nanai to defer to the tiger. And there was very rarely a problem. And But if you were to attack a tiger, confront a tiger, actively compete with a tiger, the tiger wasn't going to take that lying down. 
Mm-hmm. And there was more than just one death. And I think in in the book, I, I remember you mentioning that perhaps if um, the initial one hadn't had a gun with him, I mean, these smells, these yeah. these things that are associated with hunting, the be it uh, tobacco and gunpowder and all these things, that, that those smells mean something completely different. And it was very systematic after the after Markov was killed, the other deaths were all the same type of person. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about 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 that. That was a really interesting uh, aspect of this whole case, and, and it took about two weeks for it to come to its you know ultimate resolution. Uh, and during this time, the tiger was hunting, could no longer hunt game, began hunting people. There were a lot of people in the forest. People are hunting for pine cones because there's seeds in them that they need. They're hunting for food. There were men, women, and children in the forest. There were European Russians in the forest and also native people. This tiger for, you know, I don't know, no one knows if it's coincidence or not, but every encounter this tiger had with a human being was with a European Russian armed hunter. Mm. And all of those men had loaded weapons and, uh, the tiger confronted each one, which was also unusual because any, you know, any of us, any of us who has a house cat, we know that cats tend to ambush their prey. They'll lie in wait and jump on it from behind and tigers are no different. So for it to want to confront its prey, in other words, have its prey see it first, especially armed with guns is very, very unusual. And this animal had been shot before it knew what guns could do. It's impossible to know if it made the association between the the physical object of the gun and the bullet, but the smell would have been there. The mm-hmm. smell of the bullet in its flesh and the smell of the gunpowder on the man and on the weapon, you know, they're all about smell. They would have put that together. Mm-hmm. And so it was quite significant and of great interest to the warden, to Yuri Trush, who was hunting this animal and to the other hunters the choice of prey, if you will, that yeah. this tiger made when it had a whole menu of people to choose from, and so, many of whom were unarmed and would have been easier to subdue. One of the other things that that goes hand in hand with this is the state of that particular area in Russia at this time. And I, I feel that that's also a very important part of it. It's, in, I mean, Russia itself and this particular area in Russia is another character in the story. It, it, the the everything that happened there, the state of being of the people there, um, the way that they interact with their environment. I wonder if you could talk about uh, about that aspect of it, about the people and about their interaction with the world around them, specifically with that th- those people in those areas. So under communism, which lasted until 1991 or 1992. Um, everything was centralized and controlled. So any job you had, you were ultimately working for the government. And a lot of the European Russians in that region worked either as professional hunters uh, trapping for furs or as professional loggers. When communism collapsed in 1991, all those jobs simply went away. And so you had people who were sort of used to a job and stability. Suddenly they had none. And they were thrown kind of on the mercy of the forest. And because they were already forest people, they knew how to hunt. They knew how to uh, provide for themselves. But it, um, uh, there was this sense of being abandoned. And alcoholism is already an epidemic problem in Russian culture. And we've all heard about the vodka and all this. And a lot of that is real. And then to have your government betray you like that 
And then to have the, the most powerful people in the government steal all the money and leave and go to London and other places, uh, it was very, very demoralizing. So there was terrible despair. There's a very high suicide rate there. And so people were really struggling. And you know, this fellow Markov, who shot the tiger and was killed, he had four kids. And he was you know, trying to keep it together. And he had been living off the forest for five years already. And that's got to wear on a person, especially when you're, you know, he was a soldier. He was a veteran. He'd had a good job. You know, he'd been a truck driver and a logger. And, you know, he'd lived a, a life that a lot of us would recognize. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, to have that pulled out from under you, everything becomes very, very precarious. And you would have grief and anger and despair and also real fear, you know, I'm on my own for the rest of my life. You know, it's just me and the forest. And, mm -hmm. you know, there are tigers here. There are bears here. That region of the forest is the only place on Earth, that part of Russia, where species of the jungle, tigers and leopards, uh, overlap with grizzly bears, wolves, caribou, and wolverine. It's really an unusual place, but makes it very dynamic. The, the characters, Markov, uh, the other villagers, um, the people who go on, on to look for the tiger are all so, um, wonderfully drawn. I mean, from your accounts there. And, and the one character that certainly stands out is, is Yuri. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about him and, um, his personality and, and composite character. And because he seems to me to be so unique just in his personal makeup, but also in his position in the story. Yuri Trush was uh, a warden. He's still alive, as far as I know. And he was, because the poaching had grown so rampant post, post uh, collapse um, uh, with the trade into China, special squads of former soldiers, you know, armed with heavy weapons were inserted into the forest to stop tiger poaching. And Yuri Trush, a former veteran, a veteran of the Afghan wars and, and others, um, was the leader of one of these squads. And But what you got to realize is the ordinary citizens, uh, citizenry is poaching, and then you have policemen and politicians who are also poaching. And here's Yuri, who's charged with upholding the law in a society that is broken and which has gone basically almost feral. You know, it's just like dogs running deer. And so he would, there, he would stop people in the forest driving these tank-like vehicles, um, and there'd be the chief of police in there. They knew who he was. They knew where his wife lived, where his kids lived, where he lived. And these are people who, who will kill you. Mm -hmm. And he had to make some very difficult decisions in these very re remote forest encounters. And in a way, the people were more dangerous than the tigers. And so I saw him um, like, you know, those compasses on, on, on a ship that, that swivel back and forth, always trying to stay level when everything around them is tossing and turning. And that was the chaos that Yuri Trush had to negotiate. Yeah. And then you throw a man-eating tiger into the mix and, you know, he had a lot to deal with and how he kept his center and his integrity in the midst of this chaos when it would have been probably easier for him to poach tigers. He could have probably done it too. He knew where they were and yet he didn't. And so that, that honor that he had and dignity and tremendous both moral and physical courage, um, really, really, really impressed me. And, you know, there, you know, Russian wages are, are nothing, you know, so he did it. 
out of some kind of personal code, mm. and I found nothing and no one to um, to dispute that or or uh, diminish that. Uh, so it was That's- really I was really a privilege to spend time with him. I was uh, really touched by his story and the integrity of how he handled it really came through. It seems that he uh, and many others contributed to some of the the, t- the takeaways for you, the lessons that you've taken from the story. And I know you mentioned a little bit of that in your talk today, um, that, that things like empathy and sensitivity. I wonder if you could talk about some of the, the lasting lessons that, that you have gathered from, from this time that have stayed with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I distilled some of those into a, a TEDx talk that I gave called 10 Lessons from a Tiger. And, you know, one of the things I learned was just simply from speaking to these hunters and speaking to so many tiger biologists, really how much we share with tigers and, and other apex predators, you know, in terms of the sense of territory, uh, the sense of kind of indignation when people crowd our space, um, a, you know, a competitive nature, um, and but also, you know, a, a, an ability to adapt and strategize and the human beings as well. Um, you know, some of these folks, you know, coming from the United States, you think of tiger poachers, you know, what what could be more loathsome except maybe, you know, white slave traffickers mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, and uh, and yet speaking to these people and realizing, well, they actually had legitimate jobs before their entire society fell apart and they were betrayed. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to uh, make a living. And it's a, I think it's similar to how some people find their way into drug dealing uh, in North America. You know, th- th- this is not their, this is not what they want to be doing. It's not what they would want their children to be doing. But they are trying to keep it together during a time of total chaos and breakdown. And And so it gave me a lot more compassion. And it made me think about a lot of the judgments that I bring to a situation. And it made, you know, I, I've sort of tried to hold on to that lesson of, of you know, withholding judgment and really trying to figure out where a person is. And, and you know, one of the, the privileges and rewards of being a writer is, you know, you really get to spend time, a kind of intimate time listening to people talk about things that really matter to them. And it's a way to really get to know people. And especially in a place as different as Russia and speaking to, you know, the native people there, you know, who speak completely different language, have a completely different history. Uh, and, you know, they talk to tigers, you know, it's, it's very far out. But the more you learn about the way they live, it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have, we talk to our dogs and cats all the time, even though we might not admit it, you know, and to talk to any uh, dairy farmer and or um, rancher, you know, and they, they, they know their animals. Yeah. They know how they feel. They care how they feel. Their animals know them. You know, there's a bond there, and it's quite ancient. Well, it's a great message, um, always, and it's a particularly poignant now, I think. So, well, that's wonderful. It's a time for another song. And um, so, John Valiant, author of The Tiger, is in the studio with me today. And if you like this interview and want to hear more, you might want to check out our archive um, for another show that dealt with some animals. And that was with author Susan Casey, uh, who has written about dolphins and sharks and, and also is a, a, an incredible environmental writer. She has a great article on plastic. And we've been talking about that here on campus and in the studio. So, if you're interested and like what you're hearing today with John, 
Valiant talking about the tiger, definitely check out our archive, seu.edu slash apex and uh, check out the podcast with Susan Casey. I think you'll like it. The next song that I have for you is a song by Tamino and it's W-O-T-H or WATH. You're listening to the Apex Hour, KSUU Thunder 91.1.
All right. Welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan. That song that you're hearing was by Tamino, T-A-M-I-N-O. And the song title is Woth, W-O-T-H, all separated by periods. I am in the studio with John Valiant. Welcome back. We're talking about his book, The Tiger, which you can find anywhere you find books. And in fact, there is also an audio book with his incredible voice reading it. You probably get told all the time that you have a great speaking voice. Oh, thanks. Well, that's so kind of you. <laughs> when I heard that you do the audiobook of, of when you're reading, I thought, wow, I bet that's a really incredible experience. So if any of you are out there into the audiobook realm, definitely check it out. So anyway, welcome back, John. We've oh, been thanks. talking about The Tiger, but also I'd love to spend a little bit of time on your other two books. One is much earlier and one is a little later. Um, so let's start with with The Golden Spruce, which is the earlier one. Um, what an amazing story about a tree. And as one of the audience members today talked about, she said she wasn't quite sure about reading a story about a tree, but that she was completely transfixed. So well, tell us about The Golden Spruce. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Uh, uh, there are not many books written about a single tree. Indeed, I mean, tree is, was you know was it, it it no longer stands because it was cut down. It was killed, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a goal, a unique tree on the west coast of Canada. It was a Sitka spruce, which is a huge species. You know, redwood sized. You know, they can have twenty foot trunks and they grow to you know three hundred feet tall. They're gigantic trees, and this one happened to be golden. And when we think of trees, you know, they're green. And, and of course they are. And, and that's where the chlorophyll is. And that's where the photosynthesis takes place. This tree was a, a freak of nature. And you could fly the entire coast of North America, west coast of North America. And there was only one golden tree. And that was it. And it lived in Haida Gwaii, which is a remote island archipelago um, off the northern coast of British Columbia. Uh, right near Alaska. And this tree was sacred to the Haida people, an, an Indian uh, nation that lives out there. It was actually beloved by the loggers who were logging the island for the other big trees. But that one was so strange and beautiful, they didn't mess with it. Uh, hmm. And then it was cut down by uh, an angry um, logger who had become really disgusted with the rapacious uh, clear-cutting of the industry. And he knew that tree had been protected by the logging company that was mowing down the rest of the island. Uh, and he decided to cut it down as kind of a punishment to the company. And he didn't know that it was sacred to the Haida people. He didn't know that it was beloved by botanists who were trying to solve the puzzle of why it was golden and not green and how it could live, how it could be 165 feet tall with this disability. And then he disappeared under suspicious circumstances. And some people think he was murdered. Some people think he drowned. Some people think he's still alive because he was an incredibly tough man. He had been a timber surveyor and was able to survive in, you know, really rugged mountain conditions all by himself for weeks at a time. So it, it's, uh, you know, another cross-species uh, murder mystery, if you will, not that different from the tiger, just different different beings. Yes, I heard you say earlier that the golden spruce is sort of like the, or the tiger is like the golden spruce mm -hmm. with stripes. There yeah. is this blend, uh, these similarities mm -hmm. in the story. I, I wonder if that, um, did that hit you after the fact or did you sort of see that as soon as you started the tiger? Well, I think all of us, uh, you know, have our own particular interests. And there are just certain things that twang our, you know, enthusiasm, if you will. And as a writer, you know, I'm looking for stories. And so there's certain kinds of stories. But 
I, you know, The Golden Spruce was my first book. It was my first big magazine story. And I never thought I'd find another one like it. It's so strange and unique. And, and then to find The Tiger right after that, two years after, you know, I, I was, I feel very, very fortunate uh, to have had, you know, two, what for me are truly stories of a lifetime, mm -hmm. you know, and they really made my career and they were fascinating to research and really a privilege to tell. Yeah. And then your most recent book is is fiction. Mm -hmm. And and I wonder if you could talk about that. And and that one is another incredible story told in an incredible way. Hmm. Well, uh, you know, the novel, you know, a novel for is, is a work of fiction. Those first two books were works of nonfiction. So that was, you know, reportage, you know, all the facts are verifiable. Fiction, of course, is kind of a different animal, if you will. Uh, that's, this book is called The Jaguar's Children. The jaguar is a, a is a cat, a big cat that is sacred to many Latin American peoples. And uh, I lived in Oaxaca, Mexico, with my family uh, for a year in two thousand nine, two thousand and ten. And and many many Oaxaqueños uh, emigrate into the United States to work. Some of them legally, some of them illegally. And uh, I I met a lot of people who had been smuggled across the border. And sometimes it went bad, and sometimes it didn't. And I. A story came to me uh, about a young man, a, Oaxa a young Oaxaqueño man who's being smuggled into the United States uh, from uh, northern Mexico and inside the belly of a water truck. And the truck breaks down in the desert in Arizona and, they're, and the, everyone who's inside there, they're welded inside there, are left to die by the coyotes, mm -hmm. the smugglers. And so this story is told in the first person. Uh, through uh, a cell phone's uh, voice memo feature. Mm -hmm. And so the story is a narration. And it was actually, that was made into an audiobook too by a wonderful uh, Mexican narrator. Mm. And uh, so it's called The Jaguar's Children. And it's about this guy's experience in that truck, but it's also about what brought him there. So he's telling this story to his injured friend mm. um, uh, who's in a coma. And, you know, it's good to talk to people even when they're unconscious because you don't know what they might be hearing. So he's telling it to his friend, but he's also telling it to, re to reassure himself because mm -hmm. it's so bleak in there. And through the course of the story, we learn all about Oaxaca, where he's from, all about his relatives, you know, because he's trying to reconnect with his family through storytelling, which is kind of what we do anyway. Mm -hmm. But it's just in this really condensed, intense, dire mm -hmm. circumstance. How was the process of writing fiction? Uh, did you find it enjoyable, more difficult? I mean, did it ha t talk to me about how that differed for you personally. It's a, it's a totally different experience because while there's a lot of research, you know, to make the Jaguar's children feel real, you know, I had to know a lot about Mexico and Mexican culture. The voice of Hector, the narrator, you know, and, and a lot of fiction writers will tell you this. You know, they'll say a voice came into my head and started talking, and that's how it happened to me. Oh, and you know, I'm a nonfiction guy. I'm super detail oriented. I'm very fact based. You know, everything. You know, the magazines I wrote for were very picky about their fact checking, and so to write fiction was like being sort of let off the leash, and and, <laughs> and it was very disorienting in a way. But this voice of Hector was so strong, I can't really explain where it came from. Wow. But I. You know, I was interviewed and, and reviewed by Mexican uh, nationals and, and authors, and they said, wow, you know, you really know a lot about the Mexican psyche. You know, how did you learn that? And some of it, Hector taught it to me. And I, I can't really explain why that is. Some of it may have the fa to do with the fact that 
earlier generations of my family lived in Mexico and made their lives there. And I don't know if some of that is sort of carried through. We always had a lot of Mexican stuff around the house and people spoke some Spanish. My Spanish isn't that good. But it was a very strange and very different experience. That sounds like magic. Do you do you remember the moment that you heard his voice for the first time? Absolutely. Yeah, I was sitting in my office. I was. We had a little house in Oaxaca. I was still writing the Tiger then. I had uh-huh. to finish the Tiger, so I'm dealing with all the editing details and the in you know the, the you know just the the final clerical stuff, and. This voice came into my head, which is the first line, first lines of, of the novel, which is, you know, hello, I'm sorry to bother you, but I need your assistance. And, and it's this, it's Hector trying to make a cell phone call. That was the first, that, yeah. Yeah, wow. Said, I'm sorry to bother you, but I need your assistance. Did, did you find yourself asking him questions or did the conversation just, I mean, I'm just sort of curious. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, <coughs> excuse me. It really is kind of a magical experience, but I think a lot of novelists will uh, have shared it. And you just open yourself up to them. And, you know, you'll, 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 you'll make these sort of, at the beginning, it's very tenuous because you don't know each other very well. And, but I know he's stuck in this truck. I know he's trying to get out. I'm trying to figure out who, who is in there with him. And he, he's with his buddy Caesar, Cesar. And, I learned more about him, and then I learned, oh, you know, his dad was encouraging him to go north because he was so in despair of the situation in Oaxaca. So I learned a bit about that, and I learned more about his mom. And so slowly this happened, but I actually wrote the whole first draft basically in about six weeks. Wow. And it's it's a little bit like being in a trance. Wow. It's a really weird experience, and uh, it's a real adventure. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was really a, a, a special moment to hear about. Mm. Um, your next projects, we can, if you can share, I know it, you have a great article that I recently read it, that's from The Guardian uh, about Hellfire, or mm-hmm. t- entitled Hellfire. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a, an ongoing issue for you uh, and if that's something that you're thinking about now um, or if you have plans to go back to fiction. Well, Hellfire was about that uh, terrible uh, car fire. It's called C-A-R-R. It's called the car fire, the fire in Redding, uh, California, that that uh, killed a number of people. And, you know, one among the the, the half dozen hideous fires right. that hit California. British Columbia also burned really badly. Uh, Alberta burned two years earlier. And um, so I'm writing now, working on a nonfiction book about these huge urban fires mm-hmm. that are that are becoming more and more common, and uh, just the dynamics of that kind of energy coming out of the forest into urban areas. Uh, people's experience with it. The car fire was unique in that it produced an actual tornado made of fire. Mm-hmm. So it was a an E3 class tornado that was filled with flame, and that's as far as I know, really never happened on Earth before. In the article, you you talk about how this is something that's never happened before, but is we're coming up with a new terminology for it because it's yeah. going to keep, it is yeah. continuing to happen and is going to keep happening more. Uh, can you talk about uh, that, about about the future, about the direness, about what you're seeing in the trends that that is leading this to be such an important issue right now. Yeah, no, the the, the 21st century, you know, is going to be an age of of fire, among other things. And uh, you know, the atmosphere is changing. the The heat uh, of the earth is changing. Uh, the dryness in the forest is changing. 
and all of it points toward bigger, more powerful, faster moving fires. And, uh, you know, there is a human component to this. Um, the amount of uh, greenhouse gases that, that humans generate is now big enough to actually affect the, the, the chemistry and behavior of our climate. And, you know, what it's hard to realize, you know, the earth seems so big, the air seems infinite, but we live in a closed system. And just as you can drive an animal extinct, you can change your atmosphere. And anyone who's been through an inversion in Salt Lake City knows, you know, if you weren't, if ever, if no one was driving a car during that six weeks inversion, you'd have very different air quality, but it holds it in. Mm -hmm. And our atmosphere does a, a version of the same thing. And that is changing the way fire behaves on this planet. Mm. And it's, it's, a, it's going to be a big part of the news cycle and a big part of ordinary citizens' lives going mm -hmm. forward, especially people who live in uh, what's called the wildland urban interface, which is the place where forest and uh, human communities meet. And that's, you know, lots of places like that in Utah, of course, but that's where a lot of people want to live now. You know, you want to live closer to nature, and that's where the fire is. Right. Well, we will look forward to reading more about that. But if anybody's interested in reading the article now, you can find it online. It's entitled Hellfire, and I believe it was in The Guardian. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you can definitely check that out. And again, we're here with author John, John Valiant. And um, the books that we've been talking about are The Tiger, The Golden Spruce, and The Jaguar's Children, uh, and, and then the Hellfire article in The Guardian. So check out all of those things. Um, I'm going to play one more song, and then we're going to come back with our, our sort of fun every week question. The last song I have for you is um, a, a Japanese group called Yayel. And again, this is uh, something that I heard on one of the South by Southwest uh, sort of recaps uh, in learning about. I didn't know this band, but this song is called Tao. And again, this is the band Yayel, uh, Y-A-H-Y-A-L. You're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. You know you've already felt 
Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. This is the Apex Hour with our last few minutes here um, with author John Valiant. Welcome back. Hey there. <laughs> so I have my two very favorite questions that I always like to ask. And the first one is, is just a really funny one. And that is, if you met yourself, or I should say, if you met yourself from 15 years ago in a bar fight today, who would win? So if, you're, if your person now met you 15 years ago, who would win that fight? Well, if it really came to that, I like to think we might actually get along with each other. But if we, <laughs> if we had to uh, to go at it, you know, I th- I think the older me might even stand a better chance. I'm in really good shape right now, uh. <laughs> and um, and I know a lot more than I did 15 years ago. So I think I'd have a psychological advantage, and um, I'm probably almost as strong as I was then. So I think it would be it would be dangerously close. That's awesome. So you're voting for you're you're voting for current you. The wisdom so. the wisdom yeah. wins and yeah. you're in great shape. So yeah. that's awesome. Well thank you for uh you know being willing to answer that silly one. And then my last question is is always a favorite and uh it is what's turning you on this week? And this can be anything. It can be a song that you heard or a book or a movie or a podcast or an article. It's just an opportunity for our listeners listeners to, to just get a little bit about like what you like to do in your free time and what's turning you on. So John Valiant, what's turning you on this week? What's turning me on this week is Utah, <laughs> uh, really. Uh, and I've just spent 12 beautiful days between Alta and Escalante and Zion and, you know, been learning about this, you know, really interesting and complicated cultural and spiritual situation in this state. Uh, the astounding beauty, the tremendous kindness and generosity of people who have guided us and shared, you know, their, the secrets and jewels of, of this beautiful place with me and my family. I'm here with my wife and kids. And so, uh, Utah is really turning me on right now, and I really want to come back. All right. Well, fantastic. Well, we're so happy that you had a good time. Um, We'd like to say thank you so much for all the time that you've spent here with us this week, and we're glad that Utah is turning on. So there you heard it, everyone. Utah is a turn on. We know that, those of us who live here, but it's great to hear that from those from afar as well. Uh, You've been listening to the Apex Hour, and this week we've had author John Valiant. We've been talking a lot about his book, The Tiger which you can find anywhere you find your books or audiobooks, and we'd love for you to check it out. Um, so we'll sign off for today. That's all the time we have. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.